0: you're listening to bella figura the tradition of living beautifully i'm your host dolores alfieri taranto in this show we explore bella figura the art of beautifying all facets of your life with a focus on heritage as a means to do so In each episode, I talk to designers, writers, fashion bloggers, healers, and others from various ethnic backgrounds about what I call the holy, the elemental, and the majesty, their culture, spiritual style, its principal values, and their lineage and family stories, all in a straight talk manner with minimal woo-woo. Join me in spiritual conversations for the rest of us. Your heritage is your superpower learn how to wield it. Hello, people. You are back for more. This is great news. Episode three. Here we are. I have been hearing from many of you after listening to the first two episodes and just thrilled that you've been enjoying them and that so much of what we've been talking about is resonating with you. Of course, that's definitely my goal. It's why I'm doing this. Otherwise, I could just sit and talk to myself. (laughs) So please keep the emails coming, the comments on Instagram, the DMs, all of that. I read every one of them. I reply to every one of them. And I really do want to hear your feedback. So thanks so much for the support so far. It's been a terrific launch, and i um, looking forward to just rolling the rest of these terrific episodes that I have for you. And today's is no exception. Just a reminder that I'm recording the intro during quarantine again and during the coronavirus outbreak, but this episode again was recorded before everything uh, kind of hit the fan, right? So just keep that in mind as the conversation unfolds. So I'm going to put today's episode in the category of the majesty, as well as the elemental. And with regards to the elemental, I think this is a great example of the kind of flip side of the coin. So I... Encourage all of you, of course, it's the whole point of this show to embrace your heritage and to use it as a source of power and a foundation to build your life upon. But with that said, that doesn't mean that we blindly take every facet of it. It doesn't mean that if some part of our culture is damaging or outdated, that we cling to it because, well, it's part of my heritage and I have to, you know, Dolores says, (laughs) Dolores says, use your heritage as a source of power. Absolutely not. We want to remember with the elemental, which is of course our culture's principal values, that some of the values we were raised with, some of the values that come from our ancestors and are passed down, you know, consciously, but I would say more often unconsciously through the generations, a lot of those need to go. And I think you know what I'm talking about. We don't want to just do the things that were done before us simply because they were done before us. And as this conversation with today's guest unfolds, you'll see very real examples of how the elementals of his culture and his family were a double-edged sword. The same elemental love in this instance is what wounded him at points of his life and also what saved him at many points of his life. And I think it's that way for many of us. So just keep that in mind as the show unfolds and perhaps think to yourself, you know, what parts of your culture and your heritage and your, even your upbringing, you know, the majesty that you feel like don't serve you. And I give some of my own examples in this episode as well. So let me tell you a little bit about today's guest. Christopher Castellani's fourth novel, Leading Men, for which he received fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the MacDowell Colony, and the Massachusetts Cultural Council, was published by Viking in 2019. The novel explores the complex relationship between Frank Merlo, a Jersey-born Italian-American, and Tennessee Williams. Castellani is also the author of the novels All This Talk of Love, the Saint of Lost Things, and A Kiss from Maddalena, a trilogy inspired by the lives of his Italian immigrant parents. His collection of essays on point of view in fiction, The Art of Perspective, was published by Gray Wolf Press in 2016. He is currently on the faculty of the Bread Loaf Writers Conference and the MFA Program for Writers at Warren Wilson College. He lives in Boston, where he is artistic director of Grub Street, the country's largest and leading independent writing center. So really quickly, Christopher and I had an incredible amount of similarities and shared experiences, which made this conversation especially intimate and also just a lot of fun. We have a lot of moments where we kind of laugh about the fact that we have so much in common. It's like, are we twins separated at birth? (laughs) He was really friendly and witty and refreshingly down to earth. I think you're really going to like this show. So let's jump on in and I'll meet you on the other side. Christopher? Welcome to Bella Figura Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I'm very excited to speak with you, in addition to kind of both being writers, although your writing game is is way more uh, out of the park and on point (laughs) than mine is yet, but I can't wait to talk about that. Uh, For now,
1: maybe. (laughs)
0: Listen, from your lips to God's ears, okay?
1: <laughs> there you go. Uh,
0: but we do have our uh, shared Italian-American heritage, so I, I know this will be a nice, uh, easy conversation, I'm, I'm pretty sure. So um, thanks for coming. To begin, uh, how about you just start with telling me and the listeners a little bit about your heritage and the people you come from?
1: Sure. Yes, I'm so excited to talk to a fellow paisan here about <laughs> about, uh, about our life and work. So yeah, my parents were born in a small village uh on the Lazio Abruzzo border mm-hmm. um called uh, Sant'Elpidio and it's the, clo- the closest town like bigger town to it is the town of Rieti and then closer to, uh, then a little bit further out is Terni. The village is about 40 miles northeast of Rome. And so it's a, it was a place it's a place now where uh, Romans have second houses to get out know, get the mountain air and to get away you know escape the heat of Rome in the summer but at the time my parents were living there, it was not a, you know, not a resort town. It was right. just a very, very <laughs> small, uh, I think there were three streets, you know, a church, a store, that kind of thing. And they were on, they were just barely on the Lazio border. So, I mean, I mean, i mean, sorry, just barely on the Lazio side of the border. So they were very proud that they were in the Roman province. Um, so my, my parents were always telling me that, you know, we're Romans. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <all right." laughs> you know? yeah. so, and so, yeah, my, my, my father came over after World War II in 1946 with his family. Uh, his family were f- like on the poorer side of the hierarchy of this tiny village they were sort of the farm and the, and the farm that they were farm people, I guess you could say and so his his family came over because his father fought for the Americans actually in in World War one so he had military experience. So he was able to bring my father's family over. And after about my dad spent about seven years in the U.S. and then went back with his brother to the village to, of course, find a wife and picked my mother, who was the youngest of seven and whose family was sort of the aristocracy of the of the of this tiny village because they owned the grocery
0: store. Yeah, it's all um, it took back then.
1: Exactly, mm-hmm. so you know a guy who would have been beneath my mother if they had stayed in the village, she would have never have considered him suddenly because he was living in the u s her parents said, Oh my god, you you know, you struck gold, you know you right. have this opportunity to marry this man who is having this amazing life in the u s and mm-hmm. my mother wanted nothing of it, but her parents. Basically said, you have to marry him, or you know, we'll disown you, or whatever they said. Wow. And so she left everyone and married my dad, a guy she really barely knew. She was—he was seven years older than her, so she didn't had really had no memory of him, uh, very little memories of him when he did live in the village, and um, came to the U.S. and settled in. Wilmington, Delaware, which actually has a pretty strong Italian-American community, sort of a runoff of the Philadelphia community, but, but a pretty strong Italian-American community there and lived in a row home with my dad, obviously, and his brother and his wife and their parents. So three families in one row home. And my mom was immediately sent to work at a factory <laughs> to make money. And that was not the sort of life that she expected at all.
0: Wow. She probably thought she was going to be in the village, just kind of working in the grocery, if anything.
1: Exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, she, it was not the trajectory of her, of life that she, that she expected. And then, but then, you know, the sort of trade-off for going to the U S and leaving everyone was that at least in the U S she wouldn't have to work. Maybe she could do some modeling or some dancing or, oh. cause that was sort of what she was interested in. And she had the looks for it and the, the talent for it, but that never that never came to pass because my dad's family were very, they're farm people. They were very traditional. They were very, un, you know, sort of unskilled labor, quote unquote. And so that was the sort of life that She was put into, and it was incredibly difficult. She said her their village. She was in the village during World War II, and which was and the village was overrun. There were German soldiers. It was they had to evacuate all the sort of terrible things that happened um, during World War II. But she said, and there was you know they were hungry, etc. But she said that that was a happier time for her the world the war in her village than. Being then her first 10 years in the United States, um, living as an immigrant with a man she didn't know, really, and working at a factory and with all these really a family of strangers uh, and being incredibly lonely and missing her family and really wondering if she'd ever see them again. So,
0: okay. There's so much. (laughs) Okay, no wonder you wrote three books about it.
1: I I basically just summarized my first two books. (laughs) I mean, just
0: in that little beginning is so much, so much richness, so much history. Your parents are still married?
1: Uh, my father passed away last year, this month, um, oh, I'm sorry. So, but they were married for 65 years. Yes. Wow.
0: So they stayed together even with that, that kind of beginning. Yes. And yes. Okay. okay. Also yeah. another time for sure.
1: Exactly. And
0: so it's interesting because my, my parents as well are Italian immigrants. Um, so just like you in first generation and my father actually has, has passed away as well. Mm, and sorry. My mother, it's very, it's just talking about the similarities again. My mother mm-hmm. actually has a similar story of her first 10 years of marriage. They weren't, they got uh, married much later and they came here in 1967, but mm. the first 10 years or so here with just my father's family were, were wow. the worst of her life. Yeah. Wow. How yeah. interesting. <laughs> Isn't that wild? <laughs> yeah, seriously. It's a, I wonder if that's kind of like a Italian American female theme in some way. It probably it's, is interesting, you know, well, being away from her family as well, et cetera. So that's a very rich story. So growing up, were you aware of these stories or is this something that you learned uh, later on?
1: I was all too aware. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I was sort of, I was the change of life baby. So my mom had me when she was 40 and which in 1972 was sort of a bigger, much bigger deal than it is now. And my brother and sister were 14 and 16 years older. So they, I don't really remember like living with them. So I felt like I grew up as an only child with my parents and they were very, very, my mother, especially very, very forthcoming about probably too forthcoming about their stories and their histories and their, Marriage, and they're you know just really really filled my head with with all these stories of growing up in the village and of what it was like for my mother and for my father. You know they both had difficult circumstances, and I was really I mean they may have told these stories to my siblings too, but for some reason I was really captivated by Mm -hmm. them, and I really identified with them so much that I often felt like that was my own childhood was spent in that village versus the real childhood that I had in the U.S. You know, I I always, I kind of inherit or it was almost contagious, this feeling of living in two different worlds at once and uh, feeling like I had this whole other history somewhere else that felt at times more real to me than than the, Boring old world of Wilmington, Delaware, where I was living. So I really internalized these stories, is what I'm saying. And and my parents really like. I spent so much time with them. I was a, sort of a lonely kid. I didn't have many friends, and and I I went with my parents everywhere. They took me everywhere. Um, spent a lot of time with my cousins. Uh, I had approximately 300 cousins, you know, <laughs> in in Wilmington, and and spent a lot of time with them. And and so in that in this you know very Italian American community in the Little Italy section of Wilmington. So those are really happy memories, but they feel like they're almost of a, I mean, they are of a different time, but they feel like they're of a really different time from what my, even the people I was, what the kids in my, my class were, the kinds of life they were living felt completely alien to me. So it sort of is not surprising that I ended up writing them down or exploring them in fiction because they, you know, I'd so internalize them.
0: Yeah. You know, I wonder often, I mean, not to get too creepy with similarities, but I am also <laughs> born 10 years after my, oh my siblings. God. Yeah, oh, I, I'm listening. <laughs> <laughs> oh my I know I'm yeah. listening to you thinking, I don't even know if I'm going to say it because uh, right, so right. just let it go. But yes. And I, I am also the one in the family who heard all of the stories And I often wonder if you, you know, did the writer become the writer because of the stories? Right. Or did you listen? Right. You know what I'm saying? Like chicken or the egg type idea. Um,
1: Yeah. I mean, I thought about this a lot. And I really think that like some like, you know, as I said, I think my brother and sister heard all these same stories. I'm sure they did. But if you don't have the whatever it is that you and I have that sort of gene, that spark that whatever you want to call it that that gets turned on by or that is more receptive to these stories then you just they just kind of wash over you you know I mean I know my sister and brother internalized those stories on some level but in no way the way that I did and I and maybe it is also a function of being the youngest and being you are the youngest right yes I am Mm -hmm. yeah 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 so Mm -hmm. so not just 10 years you know, younger, but young, but being the youngest yeah. where, yeah, I think that maybe they communicate to us in a different way because, I mean, I don't know if you felt this, this pressure, but as the youngest, I kind of was pressured subtly and not so subtly to not go anywhere. If you know what Mm. I mean? Like, (laughs) like I was supposed to stay home with them my entire life, you know? And if I was going to, let's say, get married or whatever, it would be like I, we would get married and live next door, right. you know. Yes, and I mm-hmm. would take care of them. And that, my, and though my brother and sister had somewhat similar expectations, it was not it was not anywhere near as strong as for me that i was the one that was supposed to take care of them. Um, Absolutely.
0: It's it's a very traditional Italian I mean i don't know about northern italian but definitely southern italian just, you know yeah. the idea that the last child is the one who who takes yep. care of the parents. Yep, exactly. So maybe it does forge a stronger, maybe not stronger but more intimate kind of bond in mm-hmm. that way. I so think that so. you listen.
1: Hmm. I think
0: so. But I know, in my case, I feel like I was brought into the family to kind of narrate it back to itself. Hmm. Hmm. the best mm-hmm. way to put it. Absolutely. And, you know. And I think the idea of family stories which is a huge reason why I'm I'm starting this new podcast. Hmm. I've done so much research into the the idea of family stories, right? The benefits of them. And really what I've found is there's lots of studies. It's They're not just anecdotes that, like you said, like can be washed over. Really, family stories are the difference between you feeling like you belong in the world. Mm-hmm. And there's plenty of studies that show that children who are taught their family stories feel more confident when they get older they have more emotional kind of uh, strength and it's obviously because you know your place so you know you belong you're right. not right you're not searching for this narrative this history it was kind of told exactly. to you yeah it's built it like
1: builds the foundation of your life like it's something you can always you always feel like you're on a kind of solid ground you know exactly. uh, because you have those those however i mean It doesn't even mean that you have to fully embrace them, but you have them because I know a lot of people who have very troubled relationships with the stories and with their experiences, but just knowing them is a kind of power, right? And and, and gives you a kind of security that other people don't have. So I'm so excited that you're doing this.
0: Yes, me same here. Thank you. And so excited to like come across people like you who, you know, we can really dive into these they're kind of, you know, amorphous and right. and intangible, you know, conversation, you know, all, all conversation is intangible, but you know what I mean, these things mm-hmm. that you can't really grasp, they're kind of mysterious mm-hmm. um thoughts. But so in your case, can you just talk a little bit more about how knowing these family stories strengthened you and and strengthened eventually your work?
1: Sure. Well, I mean, you know they say that um, you know your first book is always your most autobiographical, and so I think when people first start to create art of any kind, whether it's a novel or a painting or whatever it is you you know you immediately go to what is closest to you, what is most familiar, what you know the you know, the material over which you feel like you have the most control and about which you have something to say mm. and yet when i So when I started writing my first novel, in a way you would think that I would write about a young Italian-American man in an Italian-American family, you know, in sort of contemporary setting. But it was not even, I never even thought of it consciously. But I, when I went to write my first novel, I started with my parents or people who were kind of, avatars for my parents in a small village in Italy during World War II. Right. Um, and so I think that speaks a bit to how to how tied, to how inextricably linked I feel to that time and to that origin and a sense of the security of feeling like that is where I belong and came from, you know? Um,
0: I do, I, actually. It yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> never occurred to me to write about, like, to write about someone like myself because... That's not the beginning of the story. I'm not beginning of my own story. And yeah, I mean, it obviously goes back way further than that generations and generations and generations. But the stories that I grew up with from my mom and my dad are so vivid and so front of mind that, um, that that's where I had to start whatever story I was first going to tell. So it really was an instinctual thing. I never deliberately said, Oh, I have to start in the village because I'm going to write a trilogy or whatever it was. I just, it was a, it was pure instinct. And again, I think that speaks to how powerfully close those stories were to me and how much they, how much I imbibed them. So it's
0: like the book you have to get out of the way before you can write the others. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, you're starting at the beginning, you Mm know,
0: Mm -hmm. I do. And, you know, Uh, So I wrote a memoir. It starts just like your trilogy begins with my parents' lives in Southern Italy. There you go. And and it it kind of goes back and forth. It flips back and forth. And then my narrative is just kind of this growing up in the the 80s and 90s, a young, creative, Mm -hmm. free-spirited, kind of modern girl in an old-fashioned Italian household. And I'll tell you, the chapters I wrote about my family— that mm-hmm. where I was, I do not live in them, right? I'm just the whole kind of book is about why? Are, why am I so attracted to and haunted by these stories I wasn't even a part of? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I loved writing those more than I loved writing about myself. Oh
1: yes, yep. I, I have a feeling
0: you get that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I relate to that entirely. I really do. Yeah, I mean, I my my third book, which was the most, you know, contemporary that sort of catches up with that is set in the '90s was absolutely the hardest book that mm. that I took 7 years whereas my other books took 3 and 4 2 and 3 and four, well depending on how you look at it either 2 years or 4 years and so the third book took double the amount of time because I don't know what it is I feel more confident more close more connected to those older stories than I do to my own current life and and I also worried that I don't know if how you, if you felt I mean it's different with memoir but that it felt like, well, who cares, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, I mean, it's not, it's not as interesting. It's weirdly not as interesting. It's not as compelling as these other, as these other narratives. And, um, I mean, I don't know if, if this you know, helps you at all or, or speaks to you at all, but I feel like the only way I could have written any of those books is by change. Like you're writing memoir, so it's different, but having a fictional distance from the characters, like creating characters who are, like, but not like my family, and like, but not like me, and getting that, having that imaginative distance, like, and being forced to go that imagine, make take that imaginative leap with every character, and having changed something fundamental about every character in that story so that they're not exactly like me or my mother or my father or my brother or my sister like really kept it like for me fresh and Mm. existing enough Mm -hmm. whereas that was really i mean again if you're writing memoir it's obviously a different project but having that imaginative space like really was a lifesaver for me like i don't think i could have ever written a memoir only because I would have been, I'm already so close to it. I don't need to get any closer. So, <laughs> you know, so that's kind yeah, of like- Yeah, I do. I it, just
0: like the way you put that, you know, like, it, like it's already freaky. I don't need to get any freakier. <laughs> exactly,
1: exactly. Well, I mean, these emotions are so overwhelming and yes. Italian families in particular, it's like, it'll swallow you whole if you yeah. don't, if yeah. you don't kind of find a way to separate yourself from it. And for me, writing and really the quote unquote artist life, the creative life has been the way of separating myself from my family, which I love them dearly. But I would if I hadn't had this, I really felt like they would have swallowed me entirely. Mm. I would probably still be living in that in my mom's house right now, Mm. you know, and, you know, and I didn't as much as I love her. That's not the life I feel like would have been for me.
0: It's almost it's almost as though in writing the stories, you're kind of like here, now I have to go.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: You know, like this is my, this is what I can do for us. And by right by us, I mean, not just your family, your immediate family, but like your ancestral lineage, the whole Absolutely. long tail. Absolutely.
1: No, that, that is once I got into the sort of, once I got deep into the first and second books, like I really felt like I would, that was one of the main goals was to, was to write kind of as a way of documenting like that experience and our family that wasn't our family, but is our family, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that their lives and what they went through and what we went through. And then with the third book, which is more personal and more contemporary, I wrote it as, I mean, the la- I very deliberately, the last word of that book is goodbye. And I really wrote it as a kind of way of separating, I think, from from the family and of kind of, Keep creating a distance through art, you know. As I as I said, and of kind of yeah, and of saying this is this is my thing, and it's related to your thing, but it's not the same thing. We don't, right. you know what I mean? So, yes.
0: And I, and yeah. I will get to this in a minute, but sure. I saw it just looking through your body of work because your mm-hmm. latest book, Leading Men, mm-hmm. I I instantly saw is this departure from the family. Yes, but it doesn't leave Italy. And and I fi- <laughs> and I I don't I just instinctually understood that like this is where you're okay you've you've written the narratives of the family that have kind of possessed you, haunted you, and now you can't really leave the entire culture and heritage behind. But yep. you're definitely shifting to things that, as we'll we'll get into, I'm assuming yep. are are very important to you in your current adult life. I don't want to put you on the spot, and but I. I do love, what I love about these conversations and why I'm crazy enough to start another podcast is because Mm. I don't know all the answers. And what I love is learning as I speak to people and getting answers to these questions that you kind of carry around in your heart. So do you have any guess as to why we are so haunted by these stories? Mm. What is it about perhaps people in general, but, you know, maybe specifically the family members in each family like us.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: What is it? What Mm -hmm. is it about us or what is it about the stories? Any guesses?
1: I mean, it's such like, I mean, it is strange because, I mean, we're not the only immigrant community, you know, (laughs) culture in the country, you know, by, know, (laughs) by any stretch. And but and each each culture has its own relationship to these sorts of stories. I mean, I have Indian friends and Jewish friends and and I mean friends of all stripes you know who who are who are, who come from immigrant families and they each have a really they have a co- like among each group there's a kind of coherent oh this is how you know we are and this is how we are you know and even though there are variations within those there is a kind of coherent there are many similarities within those different ethnic groups just like there are you know, with Italians, but they're not the same, but none of them are the same as Italians. None of them seem to have the same kind of, it's both like oppressive and, Mm -hmm. and deeply comforting at the same time. You know, Mm. it's this kind of blanket that, that is over you. The culture,
0: you you mean, the culture. culture, Yeah. yeah,
1: uh This blanket that's over you. That is really, really comfortable and warm, but but will sort of again suffocate you if you if you keep <laughs> whatever it on. do you mean, Christopher? <laughs> I, I don't know if you're relating to this at all. <laughs> so and but I guess because it is, I mean, not to be, it's so hard not to fall into cliche when it comes to these things. But I mean, the sort of love. This is why my third book is called All This Talk of Love because that is if there is a word, you know, how they have those word graphs where like certain words are bigger if the more they're used. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you could do a word mm. graph my entire life with my family, the word love would be the biggest word yeah. because it's something that we demonstrated and talked about and analyzed and threw at each other and wielded both as comfort and as weapons at each other all the time, love was at the center of all of our conversations and all of what we did. And I, I mean, I'm sure that's true on some level for other ethnicities, but but it just seemed like love and like things like respect and things like Absolutely. Uh, responsibility yep. and togetherness, not just. Oh, let's talk to, like, you know, I still talk to my mother every single day, but it's, it's literally just being in the same room is so important, even if you're not doing anything, you know, um, those kinds of that, those kinds of things. I mean, how could they not be haunting or how can they not like, and because those things are so tied to tradition, right? To, Oh, this is how we did it with my mother and my family. And, and all of that. And how, so how could that not be haunting? How could that not be part of our identity? That's such a core part of our identity. Um, I wish I had a better answer than that, but like, but, but I feel like, I don't know. I just, we're all figuring it out. Yeah, exactly. exactly. (laughs) I mean,
0: you've written three books Mm -hmm. and you, you're still, you know, kind of like figuring it out, right. Trying to verbalize it. It's very, it's very mysterious, but I think something you just said, something you just said just triggered, something in me like this idea that if as Italian Americans or maybe other cultures, you know, in the conversations I'm, I'm going to have with people of other cultures, I'll circle back and let you know. Right. I wonder if this is something that keeps coming up. But if there is such a tight bond, as you said, this word love and this mm-hmm. this very strong tribal connection, it's almost as though your mother's stories or your grandmother's stories Become yours, mm-hmm, right? Because there's no Ab- line, there's no, no there's beginning no and end.
1: Exactly. No, you- that's why I started with the village because that right. was that. That's the beginning of my life. That's yes. the way I think about it. Like I've been alive since nineteen, you know, twenty six. Yes, I totally you know? get that. And so yeah, I mean, and, and we, we we live with all. I mean, again, many immigrants feel this way too, but we are born into this. I wrote a piece about this recently, but I feel like every immigrant is born into both into all this richness, but also into all this loss, Mm -hmm. right? Because we are born into a situation in which our family is is in two worlds at once, right? And they've lost an entire country, language, set of traditions, etc., and our whole lives are spent trying to kind of reconstitute that in a different form in a different place, and so that loss again kind of it finds its way into us as well. so we've got this incredible loss around like superimposed on this incredible richness of tradition and ritual and food and stories and all of that. Um, so it sort of infuses all of it
0: I think loss is a terrific terrific way of summing up this this question mm-hmm. and i because i think also what what we're trying to do when we're trying to write our family stories italian american or not is capture that loss is mm-hmm. redeem that loss oh, absolutely i know for in in my family which will say like the one difference so far is that <laughs> the stories were not told to me where they were not all told to me. We we were a storytelling family for sure, you know? Mm-hmm. So I my father would talk about a lot about when he was growing up and my mother, the same thing. But it wasn't until I got older and I really started pushing, especially my mother, mm. to tell me the, some of the seedier stories, right? Some of the mm-hmm. darker side of things mm-hmm. that she really began to open up. And then this this kind of whole world was revealed. And I think, especially with my connection with her, there's this feeling of... I have to vindicate her suffering,
1: mm, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And in my case,
0: yes. I do that through art.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: So yeah, and of, and, and I
1: don't know what your mother's experience is, but, you know, my mother, neither of my parents ever made it past, let's say third grade and right, uh, education. Mm-hmm. And like, they could never write their own stories, literally could not write their own stories. Exactly. Um, and so I felt like this kind of responsibility, as you say, vindication, you know, A responsibility to vindicate or to to document what they couldn't, or to interpret and to interpret what they couldn't. Um, Yeah. No, it's and it's again that that's both a again a blessing and a curse, right? Right. You know, so (laughs) a responsibility. It's kind of the definition of a responsibility. Exactly.
0: Terrific. Well, it well speaking of in the process of writing, did you find that there were any family stories that kind of hovered over generations?
1: Well first I'll say that, you know, it's interesting that you're, you know, that you came, that your mother sort of came to tell you those stories later. Um, and I'm sure that there are stories that she'll never tell you. Yeah. She and actually tells I, me there's yeah. stories.
0: There are yeah. some stories I'm never going to tell you. And I'm like, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I need to get those stories out of you. But I'm thinking, really, my God, they must be horrible because you've told right. me some really horrible stories.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You like, I know it's like ask her to like record them and then like for after you know not to even speak of it, but after she passes that you can yes. you can have them or something. Yeah, and so yeah, I know there are stories my mother would, will never tell me. In fact, like just the other day, she referenced something that my father had said once, and I and like, she didn't say what it was. I said, "Well, what was it?" And she just said, "I can't tell you," you know. And I said, <laughs> oh. "That's," and she rarely says that. Right, so, right. Um, so that's another kind of I think anxiety that we have in the circumstances that we're in is that as well-intentioned as we are and as dutiful as we are and as compelled as we are, we're never actually going to get it right. Like mm. we're never going to get it, get the full story down. And so there's that, that spe- you know, speaks a bit to the compulsion to keep doing it is, that, is that, you know, we're trying to get to that point where we feel like we've done a good enough job. So, yeah, but I'm sorry, I forgot the question you asked. Uh, That's all right. No, I liked
0: where you were going. I was just (laughs) saying, if you found there were any stories that kind of hovered over your family, you know, generationally, like that keep kind of appearing in different form or, or just to find the trajectory of your family.
1: Yeah. I mean, it really was. Yeah, no, I mean, there are a bunch, but like, uh, probably the main one was the simple, you know, the, the, the me, the, how my parents met quote unquote of, my dad going back with his brother to find a wife and my mother being the youngest and not wanting to marry him and having to be convinced and forced basically out of the, out of the nest and then the life that she found when she got there, you know, and, and then just so many, and I know that this is what we live in, this is what we live for. So many of these little details, you know, of the everything from like the way they used to wash their clothes in the village to what it was like to be working in a factory in the yeah. 50s and you know, where they would have their lunch breaks. I mean, like all these little details that the writers, the mm-hmm. writer just loves, you know, mm-hmm. that, that end up, you know, shooting through what we, you know, what we create. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, but it really is that, that, that sort of dominant story it really, actually from, my, I think the most dominant story that I have is just this whole idea that I've already referenced of my mother leaving behind her entire family and living in a country of strangers and that being a kind of metaphor for the immigrant, For really every immigrant, like, even if you take your whole family with you, you still leave behind so much. And it's just that, again, that sense of loss that really does hover over everything.
0: Great. I get that. So I'm going to, I'm going to switch gears just a little. You are a Guggenheim recipient, which is a very big deal, if I may. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. And so I did preparing for our conversation. I did like a totally unofficial Not very thorough, brief (laughs) search of the past Guggenheim recipients. It goes back to like 1925 or something like that. So that's why it was brief and not very thorough. But I just kind of skimmed for other Italian-American names. Oh,
1: how interesting.
0: Yeah, I was curious, right, if, if there are... Many, you know, many Guggenheim right. recipients. And of course, I'm judging right by people's names. And sure, so, sure. you know, you could sure. have somebody on there whose last name doesn't quote unquote sound Italian, but their yep. mother was Italian. Yeah. Anyhow, the few names that looked Italian to me that I clicked mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. It was interesting to me because what I found was they were not doing work related to the Italian or uh, Italian American experience. How interesting. And you, you seem to be one of the only few again mm-hmm. in my very you know brief <laughs> look who right. right who who are doing work in that vein and i thought right. that that was really interesting and i wonder just speaking from your cultural identity standpoint have you found with your work have you found any kind of like limitations because of your particular culture and what you're writing about mm-hmm. or or actually are any opportunities
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's so interesting. It's an interesting question. I do um, the award is supposed to be like it's supposed to recognize your body of work leading up until then, but also support your next project. It's not supposed to be just about like you're applying so you can have money to write your next book, and here's a proposal. It's really supposed, and I'm 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 saying this for a reason. So I feel as though. I was validated that my th- first three books were kind of validated by that award as kind of as being a part of a literary of a, an American literary tradition. So I felt really, really validated mm. by that. But at the same time, the the project that got me the award officially, I guess, was a project that even though involved an Italian main character was and was set in Italy, was really focused on an American literary icon, Tennessee Williams, right? right? And so I truly wonder if I would have gotten the award if if I was continuing to write only about the Italian American tradition without mm. this other lens, without this more serious quote unquote yeah. lens, because it's all a way of answering the question of saying that, I have felt maybe this is my own just bias, paranoia, whatever you want to call it, um, or or chip on my shoulder. But I have felt that my books, my work in general, has been about Italian American, the Italian American experience, has been taken less seriously in the literary world because it's seen as somehow lighter. It's seen as you know more culturally specific. With a culture that is not taken as seriously as yeah, literary well world, said you know? yeah, well so.
0: said, yeah, yeah,
1: so I've really kind of fought again, I mean, and I can regale you we, this podcast is not long enough to regale you with stories of of all the things, all the ways my publishers have tried to really talionify my books. To the point of cartoonishness, you oh know, and putting like, making them like from suggesting really cheesy titles to all sorts of and cover art and all sorts of things to make it look really, you know, again, cartoonishly Italian, you know, kind of life of life with Luigi type mm. of stuff. And, uh, and I've had to continually fight to say, like, look, I'm not right. I mean, my last. My last novel called, I mean, my, my third novel called All This Talk of Love is not, doesn't have a scrap of a romantic storyline at all in it. And yet they, in all the marketing for it, they were marketing as an Italian romance and they released it on Valentine's Day, and um, they sent out, you know, Italian chocolates when they sent it out for Valentine's Day. And it was like this kind of thing, and they wanted to call it something like love in the piazza. I mean, they, they, not even exaggerating. I wish Ooh. I were exaggerating. Um, and um, it had nothing to do with any of those things. And so I think that we fight against these kinds of stereotypes. It's true of every, you know, every group, I guess. But I, I will say I have found it Mostly frustrating in the literary world uh, rather than empowering um, mm. to be seen in that light. Yeah, you know, yeah I and have to know, be taken because, seriously. Yeah, because I don't want to go full on dark because that's not me, but I don't feel like I should have to go full on dark in order to be taken seriously. So
0: well said. Yeah. Well, I also feel that there is a strong market and love for immigrant stories, but it's almost like the literary world or the powers that be decide which immigrants are worthy of it, of Mm -hmm, telling their stories. Mm -hmm. And our community, I think perhaps because we are so much further into our assimilation, Mm -hmm. is kind of disregarded as an actual immigrant community
1: mm-hmm. in
0: some ways, right? As, as we're, Like having an actual story, because we're kind of right. just seen as white. But right. if you really know our history, which unfortunately many people don't, including right. Italian Americans, you know that it was, it was really like only in the 80s, 1980s, that we began to be seen that way.
1: Right. Yeah, you know, right. we
0: were seen very differently before. So it is kind of frustrating. And I I found that a lot with, Shopping around my memoir, that I would have like very prestigious people, like agents, and read it, and they would say, you obviously have talent. This is really great, but kind of don't get like why the story is important." And I why think, does it matter? Yeah. Why does mm-hmm. it matter? And I think, mm-hmm. well, geez, if I was a Mexican immigrant's daughter, would it be important? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, my thinking, feeling, honestly, Christopher mm-hmm. is yeah.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, especially be. now that those are, I mean. It's an interesting, you know, comparison because now obviously with so much around immigration at the border and all of that, right. it is definitely more front and center. So I think it would be, it would matter for d- differently, for different reasons and important reasons. So, but I think the maybe the more apt uh, comparison, not to, you know, criticize that comparison, <laughs> no, but perhaps <laughs> comparison <laughs> is that maybe with Irish, you know, with Irish literature and Irish American right. experience, because I think... Think although I'm going to forget my history here that you know Irish immigration happened either around the same time or just before Italian mm-hmm. Italian immigration and certainly there was a lot of discrimination against Irish immigrants and Irish Americans and yet somehow Irish American literature Irish literature is taken I think way more seriously than than Italian American literature mm-hmm. um, and I do wonder why that is I mean and obviously. Irish literature has a great, great, great tradition in the world, but, and, but so does Italian literature. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I, was gonna say, yep. so I don't quite get it. And I mean, I guess there's, you can make this, people have made the argument that Italians have distinguished themselves artistically in film right. more than in literature and that, and that we've been so focused on that. And, and also that, I mean, I think, you know, communities like, or ethnicities like Irish like Irish families, Irish immigrants, Irish people in general have a stronger reading tradition, whereas with Italian... I mean, I don't know about you, but I was never... I was encouraged to get a good education and blah, blah, blah. But I never saw a single person in my extended family read a book. You know, know? and (laughs) and I know there's a class thing there, but I think even different classes among different ethnicities, there is a different kind of reading culture. And I think that Italian-Americans are so inherently social for whatever reason that we don't have as strong of a reading. Cul- and again, I'm speaking without any kind of, I'm speaking purely generalizing and without facts to back me up, but I'm speaking purely anecdotally, but, but I just feel as though I don't, I don't see us having as, as strong of a reading culture in general as other. As right. Other
0: traditionally, historically. Exactly. Well, I had a terrific conversation with Gay Talese, you know, the iconic, writer for uh, the Italian American podcast. Mm -hmm. And one thing he said, which, which stuck with me, he said exactly kind of what you just said, which is Italian Americans are so social Mm -hmm. that the idea of being a writer in an Mm -hmm. Italian American family is, is kind of this confusion because what are you doing locking the door? Exactly. And being what by you yourself. I, right. right. What are you hiding? Who does right. that? Who yeah. locks the door and spends hours by themselves either writing or reading?
1: Exactly. And
0: exactly. The, I think that really does point to what, you know, what you just said, that there is, <laughs> there is that.
1: Absolutely. and You know, know it's funny you mentioned Gay Talese because I had, and he wrote that very famous article in the New York Times called Where Are the Italian American Novelists? And I had that, a yellowing version of that. Clipped out of the newspaper, tacked above my desk oh, in college, awesome. you know, and graduate <laughs> school, like that was like my call to action, that yes. uh, that essay. So I owe him a lot. <laughs> yes,
0: well, I think people like you, Christopher, the reason I brought up the Guggenheim is that I think you do our culture a service by achieving what you've achieved, and even, you know, achieving it, quote, with recognition by mm-hmm. the literati, right. that that helps the rest of us, you know, mm. kind of like to Lee's same thing, right. you know, right. it, it opens the door a little bit wider to the legitimacy of our stories being told. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, well, thank you. Well, thank, <laughs> you. <laughs> thank you. So to dovetail a little bit here, um just from what you just said, you know, turning, let's say, away from the specifically Italian-American stories, let's talk about your latest book, Leading Men, which, as we mentioned earlier, turns to a fiction... Is it completely fictionalized account of Tennessee Williams and one of his relationships in Italy, or is it based on some true events?
1: It's a bit of both. Um, so his partner, Frank Merlot, a uh, working-class Italian-American guy from Jersey, they were together for 15 years. Um, all of that is true. And it is true that they, during that time, during the time they were together was the time Tennessee Williams wrote kind of all of his most successful plays. And it's true that they spent a lot of time in Italy. They spent many, many summers in Italy. It was where they were happiest. And it's also where there had many, many stormy scenes. Um, And what I, and everything in the novel could, what I often say is everything in the novel could have happened, but there's not evidence that it that it did, that Got always it. evidence that it did. So I was writing in the cracks of what was known. So all the dates, all the locations are have been double and triple and quadruple checked by me and by Tennessee Williams scholars and all of that sort of thing to ensure that actually these things could have happened. Um, but it's a lot of what happens in the book is actually fictional. I, I hope that
0: makes sense. It does make sense. Yes, yeah. it does. Like you use kind of uh, like Circumstances that you knew exist, you know existed, yes. and and fictionalized upon them that, exactly. that way, yeah. yeah,
1: and and really built on the dynamics that I knew existed among the characters to kind of extrapolate that and and write scenes in which those dynamics are illuminated, and and the whole novel starts with at at a party in Portofino thrown by Truman Capote, yeah. fun in number one, right, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And that was a real invitation. Like he did, like there is ample evidence that Capote invited Frank and Tennessee to that party. And there's, but there's no evidence that that they, that they went, but there's also no evidence that they didn't. So that, that, that's the sort of thing I was working
0: with. Great. I mean, did you do this switch consciously? Like, did you kind of a little bit want to get away from the, you know, Italian American family?
1: I think, again, it's a yes and no thing. I mean, I had read about Frank Merlot in the late 90s before I wrote any of my other books. And I knew that I wanted to write something about him because he, I I just, I identified with him as a young, well, not no longer as young, but working class Italian American guy from Jersey, um, gay. And, in a world that i didn't fully understand that didn't feel like i belonged in you mm-hmm. know he found himself in a literary in a high, speaking you know to reference our our earlier conversation that we just had he found himself in this world of the literati and you know uh, this very kind of highfalutin world where he had absolutely no preparation and felt like he didn't belong. Right. And that's sort of how I felt in academia and in the literary world. And so I kind of related to him on that level. And I knew I wanted on some level, I wanted to write about him, but I didn't know how I had no idea how to write about a real person. And it felt distant, even though I felt identified with him. I also felt distanced from him. So when I first came to write, when I came to write my first novel, as I mentioned, I started with stuff I knew much, much better. And then over 20 years have been researching him and Tennessee Williams and other, and Italy and other uh, during that time and other things to sort of all lead up to this novel. So, and yeah, I really, but I really also did feel like I wanted to get away from writing about stuff that was so, so close to me, but I still needed something grounding and the fact that he was an Italian American you know, gay, Italian, American, working class guy from Jersey, um, really was the grounding that I needed, uh, to find my way into the book.
0: Yeah. yeah, oh, gosh, that makes so much sense. So uh, that's kind of what I was alluding to earlier when I said, you know, we'll get to your your latest novel it seemed right. to me just again looking at your body of work and the trajectory that there's almost this beginning where you have to tell your about your beginning and then you move through the family and these stories that kind of haunt haunt you and then you're able to kind of get to this place where you can now move into the more personal in terms of what belongs to your particular narrative.
1: Exactly.
0: Right. Exactly. Like this, exactly. which is the story of, of being gay in an Italian American working class family, etc. in America and, and, and working those things out for yourself. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And, I, and ironically, Frank did not seem to have much, I mean, it's sort of shocking uh, surprising, I should say, to imagine this, but he had seemed to have no shame or no, um, anxiety about his sexuality mm. you know which which, I, which is so interesting to me you yeah, know um, and given the time period and all of that but I mean you know having you know being connected to a person with such power and influence as Williams maybe helped quite a bit but right. but I haven't found any kind of you know examples of him so I had a much harder time dealing with that in my family's context than he seems to have had. So I
0: I wanted to talk to you if if you're okay with talking about it. I wanted to talk to you just a little bit about that, because one of the big things for me on the show, I kind of this this new show I'm talking about heritage as it relates in general to kind of three buckets i call them the majesty the elemental and the holy mm-hmm. and the majesty would be what we what really you and i have been talking about which is the the lineage you belong to the family mm. stories etc the elemental being the the values that seem to be most important to your culture mm-hmm. and the holy is the way the particular way your culture worships mm-hmm. um or when it doesn't have to be worship like in a church or a mm-hmm. temple but just spiritual uh, mm-hmm. type things so I'm also very interested in how our culture's values can also injure us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this isn't a blanket statement that says, "Well, anything that your culture values is great, and you should hold right. (laughs) You should hold on to it and take it into your life." I often say, for instance, you know. There's this stereotype. You see all these memes like, uh, I can't be calm. I'm Italian. Right, right, right. And that's a joke, but it also comes from this idea that we're very loud and we're passionate and we'll (laughs) fight and then we'll make up, which is true. I've found certainly was true in my family. I'm an adult. I've grown up in a different place and I work very hard to stay home.
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: mm-hmm. that's a value to me that yes. I don't know is necessarily mirrored in my culture. It, it's yep. me looking at my culture and taking kind of the opposite of that and saying, I'm going to yep. leave, right. I'm going to leave that yep. and take something that's more beneficial to me. So, yep. I'm going to go on a limb, you, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know that Italian Americans have a great track record of kind of accepting <laughs> right? um, homosexuality, correct. honestly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how did you, I mean, it's, I'm sure it's a very long story, but just in a nutshell, <laughs> in terms of like your culture and, and your family, but also just culturally, like how did you, how were you able to say, that's a value I, I'm going to turn away from and kind of how was that received? I hope I worded yeah. that well.
1: Oh sure, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I probably won't get the formulation right in terms of what you're saying about holiness and values, and and that. Um, I love those formulations. Um, oh, thank you. I mean, yeah. I mean, the like the absolutely the as we already we've already discussed, like the things that are so valued. One of the, so much of what is valued in Italian culture and, and what I got growing up was family, children, tra- carrying on the tradition through having kids and mm-hmm. and, and all of that. The traditional life, and also with church and the values of the Roman Catholic Church, and all that. So, I mean, I was steeped in that. I mean, with twelve years of Catholic school, all boys, high school, mm. getting constantly reinforced how important it is to have children and and have a you know a wife and all of that, and and knowing from a very early age that I was not I was not able to do that, really. I mean, I had a very difficult time growing up. I mean, like again, just like we I talked earlier about, like the loss being superimposed with all the richness. Um, it's a similar thing, like this incredible anxiety that I had, mm. that was that about my identity, that was sitting alongside the incredibly strong connection that I had with with my parents. So it's amazing how those two things can coexist. Sure. That that they didn't know me at all yes. and yet and yet we were close they're closer to me than anyone else in my, mm. in my life yep. so I mean that's the kind of essential contradiction that that and that's not certainly it's not true only in our culture but it can be true of any to human beings that you can be so incredibly close and know and have something completely and be alien to each other in, in this way. Right. So, I mean, that allowed, that, that caused me, that discrepancy caused great, great pain for me growing up. I mean, I had severe, severe anxiety, mm-hmm. panic attacks, all sorts of things all through my life. And I know that they were tied to that to to that exact thing. And, you know, not necessarily depression, but certainly suicidal ideation, all sorts of things, because I didn't see a place in my, in this family that I valued so much. And in this relationship with my parents that I valued so much, I didn't see a place for myself in it, you know, which really, it was, you know, incredibly difficult. And really it was, I mean, you know, to go back to the famous word love, it really was sort of love that, that saved me because I met somebody who who I did fall in love with and who, and my love for him and his love for me gave me the strength to, to really to come out to my parents and to take that incredible risk of losing them in order to have a relationship with him. And that was a really, that was a real risk. And I did that and it was horrible. And my parents were horrible to me. Um, Mm. and I hate saying that in a public forum, but, but they said terrible things to me and they, but, at the again, it's another one of those two things living alongside each other. They said terrible things to me while also saying, You'll always be our son and we'll always love mm. you. <laughs> you know. And so it's like you know, it's like, Well, wait, what? You know? <laughs> and like you'll always be welcome here. But and then here's the right. thing I'm gonna say to you. Yeah. So um so again, those and a lot of it came from lack of education sure. and lack of experience. Right. You know? They it's didn't, not
0: what they know. It's not exactly, what they know.
1: Exactly. I mean yeah. the, the I mean, I felt for them because, as hard as it was to hear these things, I felt for them because the very the li- very little they knew about gay men was that they died of AIDS, like oh. that. Because they they ballroom danced, mm. they knew a bunch of guys who were ballroom dancers and who had passed away from AIDS. They knew Rock Hudson, and so mm. they, I knew him personally, but right, they, right, they knew um, <laughs> of him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was their that was what they thought my life was going to be like, and so and they weren't able to educate themselves enough to get over that. And so I had to educate them, which was a very, very, very difficult thing to do. But the sort of happy ending is that over the years, they've gotten to know, they had gotten to know my partner really well. And now, I mean, you know, it started very rockily, you know, coming to family events and things like that. But now, I mean, my mother and my partner are thick as thieves. Oh, you know? I love that. And, um, oh yeah, they, I love they, that. They, they share a love of cleaning and <laughs> of cooking, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and they're they they adore each other. And my dad, when he was alive, like adored him. And and they, but it came through being open, me having to educate them, but also them being open to spending time with us and getting to know us. So ultimately, right. it's a happy story. But it. But it really, I mean, when I think of all the years that I lost to all that anxiety and all that stress, and that's when I sort of, like, think about how oppressive that kind of intensity of family can be. And yeah. that's why I have a still have a vexed relationship to, you know, to all of it. So,
0: yeah, well, you know, there's also the fear of being ejected from that tribe that you right. so
1: love. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know? Yeah,
0: it's like and, the... you know, because
1: the first thing, too, was, OK, well, you can tell us, but you can't tell anyone else in the family, mm. you know, like no cousins, no anybody, you know, and nobody in Italy can know. And and in Italy, it's still Italy is one of the most is one of the least progressive, I should say, countries around homosexuality. Yeah. And it's it's obviously the influence of the church, which, you know, Iran has no leg to stand on when it comes to morality, mm. you know. Mm. And anyway, but let's not even go mm. there.
0: So, whole we'll other show. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's also it shows me in that story, though, however, you know what, what I would call one of the elementals of your family, which you talked about earlier, which is love. Yes, exactly. You know, and it's not Mm -hmm. always love isn't always hearts and cuddles and right. Like candy kisses. It's messy. messy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's a a perfect story. But in the end, that's what you guys came back around to because that's the principal value. Exactly. Right. Of your family and your culture. So I I like to hear that. So, Christopher, we've been, believe it or not, talking for more than an hour. (laughs) And I still have like tons of things that I could talk to you about. But I we do, you know, to wrap up here, I also want to add that, uh, as I mentioned in your bio, in the in the intro, you also uh, teach writing, you're very prolific teaching writing, and you run Grub Street. I'm sorry, I'm forgetting your title right now.
1: I don't uh, have your bio know, up in
0: front of me. No problem.
1: I'm the artistic director. Artistic.
0: Of Much nicer than you run Grub Street. That was a like very <laughs> New York in me. You run Grub <laughs> Street. <laughs> You're the artistic director of Grub Street. And I just thought maybe we could close here with you giving the listeners some tips or advice, regardless, of course, of their culture, what whatever their sure. culture is, on writing their family stories.
1: Oh, Sure. I mean, I do think that there are many different approaches to it. I think that there's a real value in simply getting it down, you know, and documenting it the way that you and I were talking a little bit about yeah. almost like a, um, everything from glorified scrapbook, you know, to a full on memoir, you know, a full on really trenchant kind of memoir. There's sort of that element of it of just getting it down, doing interviews with your family, your grandparents, your parents, your aunts and uncles just letting them talk and, and centering their experiences rather than your own interpretation of their experiences in that form, just to have it for whoever, whoever wants to, engage with it because even in this age of constant documentation of every life minute, every every moment of life we do on Instagram and Twitter, so much is, you know, lost. And really spending that time with your with your family, it will yield will so much um, that you can turn into a different kind of art later. But the first step is just literally getting it down and getting those stories out of those people. So that would be the first thing I would say is this, you know, is doing that. And then If people are interested in taking a more fictional, interpretive approach to it, then I'll go back to something I said earlier, which is looking at each character that you create and changing something fundamental about about them as a way of creating an imaginative distance from them so that you can write something that is creative and not simply regurgitating or documenting what you've already found out. Because one thing I've learned over the years is that whenever I try to write about something that actually happened, it never, no matter I will never be a good enough writer and no one will ever be a good enough writer to fully capture something that happened to them the way that they experienced it Mm. because because it's impossible, because it's lived experience. and, and, And a page is just black marks on white paper. So you're always setting yourself up for disappointment to think that something that you write is going to evoke the real experience in its full complexity and vividness. So by changing something about it, you've already, you've turned it into something else and you've created something new from it. And therefore it has its own integrity and its own vividness and power that is separate from the real thing that, that occasioned it. So I really like, so if you're a, you know, if you're an Italian son, write about what it might've been like to have been an Italian daughter, you know, mm. or if your parents came from the North, write about people who came from the South. I mean, I don't know, like I'm just, I'm spitballing, but, but like, but try, try to change something fundamental or set it in the future, set it in the past, like do some, set it in a different city, like whatever, so that you are forced to use the raw material that you've researched or, or come up with and refine it into something else. And that will be from a uh, more artistically interesting experience. I think uh, that will make for one. But the bottom line is just that it, this takes real work, you know, all of it, the writing, whether it's a memoir, a scrapbook, uh, from ever, all from like all along the spectrum from a scrapbook to a real memoir to a novel to a short story to a poem whatever you want to whatever you want to make it takes real work and real commitment and it'll bring up stuff that you may not want to deal with but like that is exactly where you should go if you want to if you want to write something lasting and valuable you have to as Dorothy Allison says you have to write to your fears in my third book I wrote about the main character madalena who is a stand in for my mother having alzheimer's and that is something i always feared because all of my mother's brothers and sisters had some form of dementia and so i always feared that my mother would would lose her memory and so i wrote a novel in which a woman like my mother lost her memory it was incredibly difficult mm. to do but i but writing to my fears in that way was really ultimately a really invaluable
0: experience wow. for me wow do you come out the other side feeling differently about it
1: Um, differently in what
0: way? So for instance, you wrote, you wrote to the fear of the the Alzheimer's example. So does, does the fear get lessened? Do you look at the fear differently after you've written about it?
1: Yeah, I think so. I do. I mean, I still certainly fear that, that, you know, but um, no big deal. Don't care about that anymore. (laughs) Exactly. I didn't get over it, but, but I, it definitely helped me to process my relationship to it. And Yeah. Well, this is
0: such a random analogy i think or whatever example actually but hulu is running the keeping up with the kardashians Uh, and i've just i've never watched it released but i've been watching it lately and there's this episode where you you know you mentioned like in an age where you document everything i mean who is a bit like bigger example of right their entire minute every portion of their lives being documented they're kardashians and there's this episode where One of the daughter's boyfriends or something like that starts asking the mom, Chris Jenner, Mm -hmm. Chris Kardashian, whatever, about her childhood. Mm -hmm. And he realizes, like, he didn't know any of this. And he starts, like, recording it. And then they do this whole video and they show the rest of the family, like, Kim and all of the girls. And they (laughs) had no idea.
1: Oh, that's so interesting. I thought this is yeah. exactly
0: the kind yep. of stuff, right, that I'm I'm talking that, about in yep, Bella Figura. Absolutely. It's like yep. it, this family that documents everything didn't even know about their grandfather, like their it's maternal exactly. grandfather.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And you know what? And and it also is it, so it's important to do that step of of asking for the stories and all of that. And then it's like then the next step is, OK, well, what are you not? Like, what are you not telling me as we've discussed, right? Like, like, okay, because there are these stories that my dad and my mom and other people, they're their go-to stories that they told over and over again. And I loved hearing them but, and they were great, but like, I really got to the good stuff when I kind of drilled down on them a little bit, you know, and, and a lot of people don't even, so a lot of people don't even take that first step of asking for the stories. And then it's the, but it's the second step. Like that's where the real, that's where the real stuff is. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) I tell people, you know, most people are not just going to open up and tell you painful, terrible stories from their past (laughs) out of nowhere. Like, let me tell you about the day, you know, but if you start Asking them. Mm -hmm. And you Mm -hmm. keep going and you get past the easier stories to tell. And you keep going to meet with Noana or you keep going to meet with your grandfather Mm -hmm. for lunch Mm -hmm. and you keep asking. Eventually those stories will come out.
1: Exactly. And you ask those writerly you ask for those writerly details that, that that you know you're gonna wanna put in there. You know, like they don't let them go by and say, like, you know, well. We would get water every day and bring it back. Well, okay. What? Did, how did you get it? What did you carry? What was? What was it made of? Was it metal? Was it wood? Yeah. And that'll lead to other things. Well, it's wood because the neighbor made it because he right. was a woodworker. Oh, right. what did the neighbor do like, oh he, oh, he was young and handsome and I was in love with him. Wait, what? Exactly. Exactly.
0: That's a perfect way to describe it. I, I love that you just gave uh, listeners kind of, kind of that tip. It's just, it's in the little things that the bigger stories come out.
1: Absolutely. Basically. And it'll actually help there. It actually will spark things that they haven't thought of before. Exactly, yeah, The, the of person
0: telling before. the story yes. hasn't thought about, right? Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Christopher, I want to thank you so much for your, your openness and your honesty, your time. I will link to your work and your your website in the show notes. But if you just want to really quickly tell listeners where they can find you and find out more about you.
1: Oh, sure. I have a website, ChristopherCastellani.com. And the organization that I work for, the literary organization is called Grub Street, and it's Grub, G-R-U-B, org.
0: Wonderful. Christopher, thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's been such a pleasure. Okay. So keep those comments coming. Let me know what you thought about this episode. And if you haven't told me what you thought about the previous two, please do. I want your input and um, throw some ideas at me, topics you might want me to cover, and I will do my best to do exactly that. Please subscribe to the show. If you subscribe to the show, that means you'll never miss an episode. They will download automatically. And please consider sharing the show with your friends and on social media. The more that you do this, the more people come into the conversation and the better it will be. You can also find me on Instagram. If you just search my name, Dolores Alfieri Taranto, I will pop up. And you can visit bellafigurapodcast.com if you want to learn more about me and the show. And you could email me at Dolores at Bellafigurapodcast.com. Dot-